Our reading today comes from Starhawk. Community means strength. We are all longing to go home to some place we have never been, a place half remembered and half envisioned. We can only catch glimpses of from time to time. Community. Somewhere there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere a circle of hands will open to receive us. Eyes will light up as we enter. Voices will celebrate with us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold us when we falter. A circle of healing. A circle of friends. Someplace where we can be free. It is good again to be together. And I am, I would be remiss if I didn't take a couple steps back here and lift up the joy of our regathering task force. Now there are people that are reminding us of what the CDC guidelines are these days. Um, thank you, I, I, yes, thank you for that. I want to lift up the hard and good work that they are doing. A task force of people who care deeply about this church, who are also experts in their fields, medical doctors, nurses, and epidemiologists, and people with legal familiarity and expertise. Also lifelong church members. And so that is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And I wanna lift up that gratitude for their hard work and to reiterate my wholehearted trust both in that task force and in our board of directors here at UUCL. And of course, gratitude for our tech team who has worked tirelessly this past year and for the UUCL staff. I will likely reiterate that gratitude during our congregational meeting, um, but I feel that it is important to lift up continually during this time. So thank you all. That should be the sermon for today. Gratitude for those who have worked tirelessly this past year and who are doing the hard work for this community. <sighs> With such joy and the reading from Starhawk reminding us of community and the power of community I'm remembering back to a decision I had to make early on in my formation as a minister. And it had everything to do with lying to people. In lines at coffee shops, on airplanes, trains, at an airport bar, or any place where there's waiting and traveling with strangers, I had to decide how I would respond to them if they asked what I do for a living. This is nearly 10 years ago now. And this sounds like a weird decision to make. If you take a look at any, almost any travel guide in another country that prepares people to visit the United States, they often make mention of a few American quirks. Number one, if we ask, how are you? That's a way of saying hello and not a real question. Number two, don't cut in line. We are obsessed with lines. Number three, Americans will inevitably ask you about your work. I'm guilty as charged on all three counts. 
In seminary, I found myself on planes and in lines or even answering reference questions at the library I worked at, telling people I was in seminary to be a minister, and more often than not, it led to fascinating conversations. I got spiritual histories, questions, fears, hopes, sometimes disappointment if they found out I was a Unitarian Universalist or joy. Sometimes there'd be long-winded conversations. Suddenly, I found myself ministering to someone I did not know who unleashed a troubling past of harm and trauma in religion. Or sometimes they'd want to tell me why my line of work was irrelevant. I took it all in stride, but I still thought about if I would lie to people in the future or just give a half-truth. I have colleagues who will tell someone on a plane they work in the nonprofit world. That often leads to no follow-up questions or commentary. I remember sitting next to a rather intense person on a plane once and they asked what I did and I said funeral director and needless to say they didn't want to talk to me beyond that. But it did feel disingenuous because it was. Why lie? Why fear people sharing their spiritual and religious path with me? It's both an artificial fear and an indication of another quirk in our culture. While those travel guides to the United States often mention how Americans smile a lot, how exuberant we are, we are also a people that like our space. Do not talk to me on an elevator, many of us will say. We are staring at the numbers. Let me put headphones in my ears as quickly as possible on a plane, even if I'm not listening to anything. And on the subway in any major city, never ever make eye contact. As a clergy person, my role in this world of ours often breaks those social quirks and rules. People feel compelled to open up. I'm not unique here. Some of you have jobs like that too. Therapists find themselves in impromptu counseling sessions. Doctors get asked about a bump on a stranger's upper left thigh and the list could go on and on and on. And so early on, and it's hilarious now thinking back, I decided I wouldn't lie to people. Some of my colleagues do, to each their own. I've had nearly 10 years of fascinating conversations with people. Though I have noticed the art of airplane chit chat is certainly dying. My Congregationalist colleague, the Reverend Lillian Daniel, in her book, When Spiritual But Not But Religious, When Spiritual But Religious, But Not Religious is Not Enough. Oh, there's a lot of knots. She describes her own experiences with people opening up to her as a minister. She writes, a man recently told me about his faith life as people are wont to do with ministers. He said, I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I want to give you my testimony, if you will, about why I do not attend church. She thought, well, here we go. She continues, now, can I just vent for a minute? When I meet a teacher, I don't feel the need to tell him that I always hated math. When I meet a chef, I don't need to tell her that I can't cook. When I meet a clown, I don't need to tell them that I think clowns are scary. No, I keep that stuff to myself. But everybody loves to tell a minister what's wrong with the church. And it's usually some church that bears no relation to the one I am proud to serve. So I braced myself. She continues the story by saying the man grew up in a church, had made many stops on his religious journey. He eventually experienced a progressive church that encouraged questions, but when he got divorced, he let his ex-wife keep the church community and he moved on. Daniels continues, 
So he found himself spending his Sunday morning sleeping in, reading the New York Times or putting on his running shoes and taking off through the woods. This was my religion, he explained. I worship nature. I see myself in the trees and in the butterflies. I am one with the great outdoors. I find God there. And I realized I am deeply spiritual, but no longer religious. He dumped the news in my lap as if it were a controversial hot potato, something that would shock a mild-mannered minister never before exposed to ideas so brave and different and daring. She continues, I was not shocked or upset by the man's story. Naturally, I've heard it a million times. I almost thought I could improvise the plot line with him. Let me guess, she says, you read the New York Times every Sunday. Let me guess, you exercise, and where do you find God? Nature and the trees it's always the trees and don't forget the sunset these people like to tell you that god is in the sunset like people who attend church wouldn't know that reverend daniels continues her book with similar blunt assessments of our culture's perpetuation of individualism run amok in spiritual but not religious category it's a book that at times causes her colleagues like me to bristle or hesitate to recommend it to others. She's gotten pushback from atheists and agnostic groups, from uh, people who love new age, do-it-yourself spirituality, from the spiritual but not religious crowd, and so on. I found myself shocked at her bluntness and honesty about how she was feeling. And I still resonated with much of what she said. Many a time in my career thus far, I've been told that I cannot compete with the New York Times or the God of Sunsets. Some might look to her writing and say, look, here is a clergy person grasping at straws, trying to find some way of making organized religion relevant. Others might say, how dare she criticize the sunsets and hikes in New York Times? Others will agree. I find her writing to be even more relevant today than it was, I believe, seven or eight years ago now. You, remember, you may remember back in March, a poll was released by Gallup that showed for the first time in US history, less than half of the population belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque. That our trend of losing our formal religiosity continued, not necessarily our beliefs. We are still a nation that affirms a variety of supernatural or otherwise spiritual slash religious beliefs. But what's changing is our affiliation. And there's a variety of reasons for this. It's funny, none of those reasons have to do with sunsets or the New York Times. They have everything to do with trust and vision. What's telling in the data is that while this shift is present across generations, it is still more prevalent in my generation, what we're being called as older millennials, or I think Xennials came up with geriatric millennials. Can you believe that? <laughs> older millennials are younger. And even more telling is that it is higher amongst American liberals. Given the last four years where evangelical Christianity supported a political platform that was anything but Christian, given that there is wealth and power in mega churches, coffee shops, fancy coffee shops and shuttle buses in their parking lots, but there are huddled masses at our border a chilling disregard for the poor, the oppression of those at our margins, our trans non-binary siblings, black Americans, Asian Americans, and now real and present dangers to women's healthcare. I could keep going. It might even be cathartic for us all just to, to let it all out right now, right? 
Given all of that and more, it is no wonder that amongst progressives and those who identify as millennials are younger, generations that will live to see the beginning of the horrors of the climate crisis, it is no wonder there is an exodus. I need to be honest with you. This might sound weird, but when I heard the news from Gallup that less than half of Americans identify with a religious tradition, I was glad. Not that I want to be out of a job, not that I want religion to die, not that I want communities such as ours to suffer. No, I was glad because I wholeheartedly believe that religion needs to return to the margins of society. That religion has gotten comfortable in positions of power for far too long. That it has lost its prophetic power and life-affirming mission. That perhaps when those of us who still believe in the power of communities such as ours are forced to get creative, to clarify our mission, to reclaim our countercultural mantle, only then will religion be saved from itself. Now, Unitarian Universalists often like to think that we're exempt from these polls. But if we look at the data, while we have often exuberantly claimed that we have grown as a religion, often by a percent or less, our share of the population since 1961 tells a different story. As America has grown in population, we have not. We've remained steady. And in staying steady compared with the growth around us, we've become smaller and smaller and smaller. The news from that Gallup poll is a prime opportunity for clergy like myself, uh, for church boards, for members and visitors and friends like you to ask, what good is a church? What purpose does it serve? If our answers center only on our needs, on manifesting in gratitude that glosses over the difficulties of life, we've lost our way. If our answers begin with, well, this church doesn't do X, Y, Z, go do that for me then we've surrendered our own agency as participants in community to a more capitalist mindset, a consumer mindset. If everything is a product to be packaged, marketed, and sold, the mega churches will give you a free mocha latte and a Bible. If our answers do not begin with what is life-saving, life-affirming in community, we have little to offer the world. So yes, I'm glad. I'm glad because it feels like this news is not only a good time to ask the question, what good is a church, but to inscribe the answer to that question on our very bones. With each handful of dirt in our gardens on our seven acres, to know that that work is not just about nice plants and flowers, it's about modeling care for the earth. For our faith teaches us that we are part of an interdependent web to root every conversation and discussion we have, not in our desires alone, but in the needs of the many, the needs of the community, in an understanding that a church is not a single member or minister or committee or building, it's a place of generations. Those who've come before to the very first heretics in history and those who will come after. That our imperative is to change, adapt and grow and to ensure this place remains life affirming for those, even if we believe deep down in our justice work that a letter written to our elected leaders will be in vain, and many of them are, that it's not about vanity or virtue, but it's about knowing that our faith calls us to be active, to not be silent and passive, to not hide behind the trees along Claysmill Road. 
that though it might be uncomfortable to participate in the work of dismantling racism, inequity, and justice, fill in the blank with what we choose to do as a community. Though it might be uncomfortable, incremental, and difficult to find hope, we share in a history as Unitarian Universalist, thousands of years of history that shows us love will win the day. That justice cannot be ignored forever. That Hope is always possible. The New York Times can give you the outrage and snarky commentary. And here we show you that the way is often difficult. The terrain is uncertain, but our hope is unending. Indeed, I am glad of the news because I believe American religion has lost its way. And I don't believe we're fully exempt from this as Unitarian Universalists. And at the same time, this congregation, and I say this with all sincerity, is poised to be different. We are reclaiming our prophetic, life-affirming, life-saving message, but it requires every single one of us. For while I think it is possible for us, I also think that it is fragile and easily lost. If we are to show the world that religion can be different, to join the broken, hurting world at the margins and to still sing out joyfully, religions and churches and temples and mosques will still change, but I believe we will discover something indelible in that. The heart of that religious impulse in humanity, the joy of discovering hope and wholeness in community. I will always believe the answer is not whisking myself away to go it alone with a spirituality that mimics our dominant individualistic culture. I will always believe in the power of community. That is what makes me both religious and spiritual. Community, justice, the fullness of humanity, gratitude that wrestles with grit, an enduring hope, a tradition and story spanning generations, and the simple joy of moments like this, this connection, this moment. Daniels asks at one point in her book, who are you? God of sunsets and rainbows and bunnies and chain emails about sweet friends. Who are you, cheap God of self-satisfaction and isolation? Who are you, God of the beautiful and only the physically fit? Who are you, God of the spiritual but not religious? Who are you, God of the lucky, chief priest of the religion of gratitude? Who are you and are you even worth knowing? Her bluntness continues like that on every page of the book. <laughs> It still makes me uncomfortable, but the questions, I have to rest in that discomfort and figure out what is behind them. As we start to emerge from this pandemic cautiously, I hope we all feel empowered to ask those questions. Uh, not the one of who are you God of sunsets, but what good is a church? What good is a community such as ours? What good is our tradition and story? What good is hope and prophetic words and actions? What good are our values and what good awaits all of us. In many ways, this pandemic has liberated several notions that we have held about church, about religion, about religious community, about spiritual community for decades. It is liberated from uh, what is often called the sacred cows of religion. Many of those have fallen by the wayside and we have not missed them. And so this is a prime time for all of us to dig deep into what our mission is and who we want to be and continue to be and how we will steward this place, not just for ourselves, 
but for generations. And so to all of you, what good is a church? I know the answers on my heart are full of joy and hope. And may they be for you as well. Blessed be. Amen.